This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. This is the holiday special from CBS News Radio. I'm Gil Gross. Here's a song that tells a story you've probably heard every Christmas on the radio and in possibly every store you walk into this time of year. Where that story comes from that talks about this boy who has no money to buy gifts for the baby Jesus but gets him to smile through the gift of his drumming has interesting roots. Here's how I was introduced to it. When I was a kid in Brooklyn at the Spencer Memorial Church, the Reverend William Glenesque, who had later gained fame for officiating at the wedding of Tiny Tim and Miss Vicky on The Tonight Show, would always do something unlike anything you'd see anywhere else at Christmas. One year, it was dancers, singers, and acrobats performing a version of the miracle story, The Juggler of Notre Dame. A story first told ages ago, forgotten for centuries, revived later, and since the late 1800s, the subject of music, plays, books, movies, and even inspiration for like stories, like The Little Drummer Boy. No one knows more about this story and where it came from than Jan Zolkowski, the Arthur Kingsley Porter Professorship of Medieval Latin at Harvard University and author of a six-volume study of The Juggler of Notre Dame. Jan, good to talk to you. How are you? Very good to talk to you. Thank you for, for having me. I'm fine, and I hope that you are as well. I am. Six volumes on what seems to be this little story. You've given as much of your life to this story as Bob Cairo has to the life of Lyndon Johnson or George R.R. R. Martin has given to dragons. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, it became a, a bit of a uh, obsession and an enthusiasm. I, I loved the story. I fell under the spell of it. And I just wanted to do what I could to make it uh, enjoyable and understandable as we plow into a very different new century. Well, let's start off with the story, simplifying it for time, of course. What is the story of the juggler of Notre Dame? It's about a humble entertainer who wearies of his wayfaring life and uh, decides to enter a monastery and inside the monastery, he devotes himself to the Virgin Mary. Uh, he becomes distraught because he doesn't know Latin. He doesn't know the culture. He doesn't know even the uh, forms of worship. And he eventually 
he's saved from his despondency because he realizes that he can show his uh, love, show his devotion by creeping down to the crypt and performing there his kind of acrobatic ritual of his own that he did in the world outside. It all goes well for a time, but then eventually he's caught out in what he's doing by one of the other monks who feels that it's blasphemous for him to be showing his devotion in this way. He strips down uh, really to his underclothes to do this kind of uh, floor exercise before a statue of, uh, of Mary. And so that monk then goes off to the abbot, the head of the, of the monastery, tells him what's going on, and they go down to watch. And the, 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 the monk is getting more and more incensed about this uh, blasphemy when all of a sudden they notice that as the monk collapses out of exhaustion from doing his routine, the statue, the representation of the, of the virgin, becomes animate and soothes him by uh, rubbing away his sweat or by fanning him. And uh, the story goes on from there, but uh, th that's the, the, the gist of it. And it cuts to the heart of all kinds of issues about uh, what, is, what is a proper expression of devotion, what kind of gift can, can we make, uh, what's the role of the performer, of the artist in culture, and so I, I became fascinated by it and then fascinated by exactly as you indicated at the beginning, by the way that it uh, flickered in and out of knowledge and who played a role in resuscitating it at different times and why it is that it's caught uh, people's attention. Yeah, and it, it's interesting on so many different levels. The, the story, of course, is beautiful on its own. And one can see the similarities. The little drummer boy here's somebody who doesn't have any money for gifts, or in this case, any special religious knowledge, can't speak Latin, doesn't know the prayers, just gives the soul of his talent to Jesus, or in the case of the juggler, to Mary. And that's good enough. But that's that's interesting because over the centuries, and especially way back when, as this story starts, people who were in, you know, religious orders or um, uh, parts of, of various strong religions, it was impressed upon them that they had to know the prayers. They had to recite the prayers properly. Uh, they had to follow orders from, you know, above in the religious order. And to say a pure intent is every bit as good. I can see some religious leaders over the centuries maybe being threatened by that. Oh, I, you have hit a, a, one big nail on the head with this. And it's part of what electrified me about the medieval form of the story, which is from the 1230s when I first ran across it, because I thought, here you have a, a piece that is uh, showing on one level, ostensibly, the importance of the hierarchy of uh, the monastic chain of command with the abbot and the other monks and the kind of subordinate position of this uh, lay brother coming from outside. But on the other hand, you have uh, this, the whole system turned topsy-turvy because that lay brother, that lay brother is the one who elicits the uh, show of involvement, of affection, of gratitude from the Virgin, not 
the abbot, not the other monks. And uh, so there's something very subversive about this story, even though it appears to validate the authorities. This story, weirdly, has been used to justify everything. After Anatole France brings the story back into consciousness with a short story he wrote in 1892, the story comes back. And since then, yes, there have been movies and, you know, all, all kinds of things based on this, TV shows. But there have also been people using this story to, this this lovely story to justify everything you know, from religion to spiritualism. You see, you, you don't need the, the religious rules to to make an impression on, on you know, the, the religious world. Uh, to even Nazism, which I don't even begin to understand how that might have happened. Um, yeah. Why, I guess? I mean, the story goes from not being heard at all to being back, in, back into consciousness, and then it gets used to justify everything and anything. Yeah. Now there, uh, it, I, I will say that, I look. I've cast my net as widely as I could, and and trawled. I, I'm I'm sure that there are pieces that I missed, but I found a lot. There, the the versions that that were ugly were the ones that came from uh, World War II, from a, a Nazi, and then from a person who was basically a collaborator or a supporter of collaboration. Uh, the other versions, though. The have generally been, uh, although not always high quality, you know, because no story that's told repeatedly is always going to be told well, but they've been told by people who have really sincerely tried to put their best foot forward to do the best that they can. And that's part, that was part of the magic of the story, too, for me, was that I, in studying it, I encountered all sorts of nice people who had uh, dealt with it in one way or another. But if you have enough people deal with any image or any story, they're going to be, just because that's the nature of humanity, they're going to be some uh, bad ones and some people who um, use, the, the, use a story or an image to a wrongful end. Well, for the most part, this has been used to show the the beauty of of those who are pure at heart. And, oh, and by the way, I told you at the start, I was first exposed to this story at a church in Brooklyn. Years later, my wife and I were apartment hunting and found that very church had been converted to co-ops. And remembering the story I'd seen when I was there, we went to look at an apartment there, even though it would have taken a miracle to afford it. And we found much to our amazement. <laughs> The developer did not have the same appreciation of people in show business or juggling. So, you know, there, there, you, there you have it. <laughs> oh, that's a that's a very telling anecdote. <laughs> I'm afraid it is. Jan Zolkowski is the Arthur Kingsley Porter Professor of Medieval Latin at Harvard University and the author, again, of a six-volume study of The Juggler of Notre Dame. Uh, Jan, I thank you so much and happy holidays to you. And to you as well. Thank you for having me and best wishes to everyone. When we put these specials together, we are ever on the lookout for unusual holiday or winter traditions. However, I think it may be the Peruvian Andes for the win when it comes to the unusual. Mike Chen is a photographer who has witnessed the Christmas tradition of Takanake. And Mike, um, it's good to have you with us. And essentially what we're talking about here is kind of a controlled mass brawl for Christmas. And you've been there and you've seen this and you've beautifully photographed it too. Hey, Gil. Yeah, definitely. I stumbled upon the, uh, you know, this uh, indigenous practice on Christmas Day uh, called Takanakui within the 
Peruvian Andes uh, back in 2019 when I was uh, backpacking through the through the region. And yeah, when describing it to friends, I guess I would most e- easily describe it as a, a mass brawl on Christmas Day, or maybe if you've, uh, you're familiar with Seinfeld, the episode with uh, Festivus, uh, basically the Aryan grievances and, and feats of strength. So basically, you know, the entire region and the village basically gets together and has publicly you know, controlled fights, basically to air their grievances and, and confront each other. Yeah, and, and each fight starts with a, a handshake. And then, you know, once someone is clearly you know, defeated, basically that the fight is over and, you know, they, they shake hands and then basically start the year anew. Yeah, it is Festivus with fists. I think the hardest thing to get to wrap your head around besides the whole thing is just that this is associated with peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Um, and, you know, this, this custom, you know, while you know, we, we definitely have like a little different view of, you know, resolving grievances rather physically. It, it was a great way for the entire you know, community to get to get together. Basically, you know, grievances that they have like built up over the course of the year, um, that they know they have a, a time and a place for it, you know, on Christmas Day to get in front of the entire community, basically have the justice there. And we should point out, even though blood is spilled in these things, it is controlled, it is watched over by referees who stop it. So you know, people don't end up in the hospital if there even is a hospital, is there? Because we're, we're talking way out in the middle of nowhere. You're right. Um, this is basically behind the Peruvian Andes, a region called the Chumpadilcas, a little tiny village called uh, Santa Tomas, where Takanapi was originally originated. And basically, it's I think it's around six or seven hours by car from the nearest city. Um, so that, that means basically very limited infrastructure, hospitals, and also law enforcement, um, police, police stations. That was also partly what originated to this um, indigenous practice. Basically, you know, rather than having law enforcement and police, this is what uh, more of a self-governing um, community has adopted. You know, I believe this practice ha- held over the course of like you know hundreds of years from from the indigenous population. It's basically you know just their way of you know resolving their own grievances without you know like a third party or authority. To, to resolve that. And for listeners who are, you know, great travelers who may be wondering, well, why haven't I ever heard of this before? This is only one part of Peru. And as you pointed out, in fact, maybe you can describe it a little. It is a long hazardous drive to even get there. Yeah, it, it's basically really high up in the Andes. You know, um, some visitors really struggle with uh, a lot of the, uh, the altitude sickness, even in the closest um, city um, of Cusco. That's already pretty, pretty high up. And it's basically the, the drive is, you know, all dirt roads. It's, it's not for the faint of heart. So these are people whose heritage is a group that besides being cut off from the rest of Peru, for the most part, that fought off the Incas. That's how far this goes back. Fought off the Spanish. They're the Chunka people whose heritage is basically, we don't take nothing from nobody. So, so they're basically claimed to be direct descendants of the Chunka people, which, you know, you're, you know as you said, has you know is believed to have resisted the Spanish and the Inca you know invasion and you know colonial rule. So I I, it, I believe that uh, it sounds like a lot of their you know tradition is rooted in you know a sense of like independence, a sense of defiance, ultimately you know self governing with uh, with no like police or, or authority figures. So this starts off with dancing. It starts off with singing, and it, it seems just to be festive, and that goes on for a few days, and it, it's kind of festive until it, it isn't. Can you describe the lead up to the actual fighting? The lead up is very like a huge festival. 
a lot of singing, dancing, a lot of drinking, um, basically, you know, similar to what, you know, you know, very similar to how we would celebrate a lot of our, you know, holidays, people getting together, you know, they, they basically have, they put on um, new outfits, the, the men in particular, they dress up in unusual, like pretty unusual costumes. I would describe it as, you know, rather intimidating. They all sport like a traditional, like Peruvian ski mask to, to hide their identities. Um, and then also dress up with, you know, like cowboy riding gear. And, you know, some of them have like a, like a dead bird on, on their heads or like a, like a deer. Um, basically, it's to, you know, be more intimidating. The reason they hide their, their faces is because, you know, back a little while back before, you know, the, the beginning of this tradition, um, it was a way for, you know, people to confront each other, but w- while still like hiding their identities. So, you know, it's a way for them to be able to confront potentially their, you know, their boss or, you know, someone that from your photos that I saw when they were originally published in the New York Times and now on your website, there are women who are fighting each other. And I know you've seen some of that since you photographed that. And what's that like? And is that because it's it's a non-traditional thing, even for for uh, the part of Peru we're talking about and how people react to that? I, I think ultimately, Takanaki was traditionally for, you know, reserved for men, obviously, from the, a lot of their you know, the outfits, um, they're all tailored to, traditionally to men there. But Takanakui is, you know, it, it's, you know, for you know, everybody, uh, little boys and girls fight, men and women, even older uh, men and women as well. Uh, there there are some top fighters from, uh, you know, around the region that come and compete. But there has been a growing number of women that are kind of like stepping up to fight and, you know, resolving their own grievances uh, with each other. Uh, so I was pretty, you know, I was pretty intrigued. Um, usually when I photograph a story or, you know, just personally, I'm more drawn to the aspect of the story that, you know, is a little bit less, lesser known or less focused on. I was very intrigued by a lot of the women fighters that, you know, kind of step up and you know, while wearing their traditional dress um, that they basically, you know, handle and settle their grievances by themselves. You mentioned boys and girls. So children do this too. So even though it's you know tr- traditionally mostly for men, you know, and also traditionally um, a lot of the women are discouraged from fighting. Basically, everybody still fights, down to yeah, like you said, uh, little boys and girls, children as young as I think maybe like five or six. You know, they they hop in the ring. They basically you know something that they they grow up with. So I mentioned that there are officials to keep things from getting out of hand, not just with the fighters, but even with the crowd to keep them from, you know, getting involved and jumping in and, and all of that. But these are not just, you know, these are not people in striped shirts and whistles. They have whips. I believe there's, there are some like official judges that are part of the uh, Takanakui, but a lot of them I think are basically amateur like volunteers. So basically they, they carry whips to keep this, public brawl contained the fighting ring is basically the spectators and other fighters or fighter uh, friends of the fighters that that form the ring so these judges you know they have to take it upon themselves to keep everybody you know uh, at a distance but so that they can keep fights you know to two two people at a time um oftentimes a lot of the the spectators and you know fighters um, the friends of fighters will you know jump in um so um, yeah, they do their best to keep it two at a time. So th- there's a certain amount, as we you know mentioned at the beginning of this, that almost seems in a weird way to be part of 
a Christmas tradition in that people get this out of their system and the rest of the year in the village is peaceful. But there, there is a kind of exception the day after Christmas if people do not feel the fight resolved their differences, if they're still mad at each other or maybe a referee that you know came in with his whip a little before the two people involved in the fighting thought that they had really settled this thing. There can be fights on the 26th that can be even tougher if people feel things are still unresolved. The main fights um, it takes place on the on the day of the twenty fifth in the town of Santo Tomas, and then the next day on the twenty sixth for about a half day in the nearby village of uh, Lilique. Um, basically, the fights continue, but um, on the second day, basically the fights are much more intense. It's more of the top fighters from around the regions, specifically come for the second day in Lilike. So, of course, you're right. I'm sure if, if someone wants to appeal a fight and have another go, there's still a second day. But in Lilike, it's basically much more of a competition and uh, like a sport. Did you get any insight into what kinds of grievances were being settled by this? Did they seem like fairly mundane or were there, you know, you, you had an affair with uh, my spouse or, I mean, or just all of that? When when I spoke to some of the people, um, it seemed like it was much more for, you know, um, a lot of them said, mostly set for, for friendship. But examples that I heard from, from grievances um, include, usually include things like, you know, like land disputes, um, you know, like relationships, friendships that, you know, may have gone sour. I know you have a website. Your photographs are absolutely extraordinary. It'll give people much more of an idea of what this is. Where can people see those photos and my website is uh, mike kai chen mike k-a-i c-h-e-n.com you can see my entire portfolio all right as they say have a safe and sane christmas and uh mike chen thank you so much for being with us <laughs> appreciate it thank you so much gil Happy holidays and many happy returns of the day and many unhappy returns, no doubt, or exchanges or credits or wait, the store is going out of business. Now what do I do? So to help us with the gift of giving that really does need to keep giving back, we're joined by the deals editor at Consumer Reports, Samantha Gordon. Hey, Samantha, how are you? Doing great. How are you, Gil? I'm fine. You know, this has become a much more complicated dance than it used to be when we would just take our gift to the brick and mortar store that we bought the thing from or where it was bought for us and stand online at the exchange and return counter. Now the majority of stuff is bought online, which makes some things easier, some things a little more complicated. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, you still can go into the stores to return a lot of things if that's where you happen to get them. But if you did buy something online, you might not have that option. So you're going to be standing in line at, you know, the post office or the UPS store, whatever the case may be. A little bit different, still a little bit tricky. Yeah, I guess the first rule of returns to a brick and mortar store is to wear a good disguise. So the person who gave you that, whatever that <laughs> thing is, doesn't see you returning it. <laughs> well, if they didn't give you the gift receipt, that's on them, you know? Yeah, totally. <laughs> All right. Some places are great for returns. Some places are still good, but not as good as they used to be. And some, well have gotten pretty tough. So let's talk about those. We'll start with Amazon, because even though some people have negative thoughts about it, they still pretty much let you return most anything. That's absolutely true. They're one of the better places to return, um, but they're not the only one. There are a lot of a lot of major retailers that you're going to see, Target, Walmart, Nordstrom, Macy's, LLB, Land's End, all of these different big name brands have really good return policies. And this usually means that you have at least a month to return anything 
that you may have gotten recently and around the holidays that can be extended. Usually that that extension lasts until the end of January. So those gifts, you have a little bit of extra time to return them. Um, a lot of them will cover the cost of shipping or they will take the cost of shipping out of the return you get so that you don't even have to worry about paying for anything up front, which is nice. The funny thing is I'll go into, say, Costco, and I still feel the need to tell them why I'm returning it. So I'll say, well, you know, it doesn't taste the way it was advertised. And they're just going, yeah, look, we really don't care. Just let us scan it. Yep, they absolutely don't care why you're returning something. If they do ask, you know, you, sh- you should be honest. If there was an issue with the product, that can be helpful for the brand to know. But you don't usually don't have to tell them, I just don't want this item, and they will take it back. Whether or not they give you full credit or partial credit or cash back, whatever the case may be, they're usually pretty good about taking stuff back. But what we're seeing now that some retailers are trying to mitigate the cost of returns because of inflation and everything like that, they are charging you to return items. So they are making you pay the shipping costs. They might charge you a restocking fee, especially when you're looking at electronics. So not only are they trying to recoup the cost that they lose in a return, but they're trying to kind of dissuade people from returning products by adding these little extra fees. Some people might think, you know, I'd rather just keep it than deal with paying that six bucks to ship it back. Yeah, the restocking fee is interesting. One of the rules is that if you open up a box with a present in it or the gift wrapping or whatever, and you decide "Eh, this is not really something that suits you, don't get curious and open up the actual container the product is in. Because once you tear those tapes, once you open that box, you're probably going to get hit with a restocking fee from a lot of companies. Yeah, absolutely. The best bet is if you're not sure if it's something you're going to keep or not, don't open anything. Don't take any tags off. Just try not try to touch it the least amount possible. That's your best bet about getting the full return. If you do open something up or you take the tags off, you still probably will be able to return it. You just might not get the full value. I want to come back to Amazon because so many people order from there. And we've said, yeah, Amazon, you can pretty much return anything. And they are very helpful. They call you back right away on the phone when you need to talk to them about returning something. Here's the thing to watch out for, though. They do sell things from third-party sellers where the product isn't really theirs, and it may be mailed out by them. You may have ordered it from them, but the rules for third-party sellers may be different, so you have to kind of watch for that. Yep. Amazon is a marketplace. So a lot of the stuff that they sell comes from their own warehouses. Sellers will ship things to Amazon and then Amazon takes it from there. But those third-party sellers, they do it themselves. So you're not getting it directly from Amazon. So the return policies are up to those sellers. So it's really important to just pay attention to whether something is shipping from Amazon or that seller when you buy it. And if it's a gift and you're not sure, you might find out the hard way that that's the case, which is a little tricky, but they are able to set their own return policies. So it's just something to be aware of when you're shopping. It is. I've heard people go, but 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 I got it from Amazon. And yeah, again, maybe you got it shipped by Amazon. Maybe it was ordered from Amazon. But if you're dealing with a third party, you really have to go down and read those return policies, especially if it's a gift. I think it's it's happened to all of us. You know, at some point or another, it's happened to me where I ordered something. The seller was a Chinese company and they said, oh, you can mail it back to us. You pay for shipping. And when we get it, we'll refund you partial we'll give you a partial refund and it's going to take six to eight weeks to do that. It's like, you know, I don't trust that I'm ever going to see that money. So I'm just going to keep the product. Okay. Samantha Gordon of the deals editor of consumer reports who did all the legwork on this. So we don't have to Samantha. Thank you. Happy holidays. You too, Bill. 
One of the most beloved pieces of Christmas music is not a popular song or a carol or even a traditional piece of classical music like Handel's Messiah. It's an opera that was written specifically for television. Hard enough to imagine, and it wasn't on PBS because that did not exist in 1951, but it was commissioned by NBC and broadcast in prime time and was the first broadcast of what was to become the Hallmark Hall of Fame, the beginning of an association between Hallmark and Christmas that continues to this day on TV. For a long time, a holiday tradition on the network, it is Amal and the Night Visitors by Giancarlo Minotti. Now, in this clip from a long-thought-to-be-lost kinescope of the original broadcast, Minotti told viewers just a month ahead of the broadcast he had no idea what he was going to compose and wasn't sure anything would be on the air at all, much less what was to become a classic piece, until chance sparked a memory of the adoration of the Magi. Well, this year I got into real trouble. I was supposed to finish an opera for NBC, and I just didn't have an idea in my head. So I was walking one afternoon, rather gloomily, through the Metropolitan Museum, and I chanced to stop in front of this painting by Hieronymus Bosch. And as I was looking at it, suddenly I heard again the weird song of those three kings. And I suddenly realized that they had come back to me. And they brought me a gift. And the offer you'll hear tonight is the gift of these three kings. I now hand it to you, and I hope you like it. Thank you. Pamela Patos is the CEO of Central City Opera, which is performing a mall this year in Colorado. And more than an executive, she has sung the role of the mother in a mall herself. And Pamela, good to talk to you. How are you? I'm very well, Gil. How are you? Good, good. For people unfamiliar with the story, tell people briefly what the story of the opera is. Amal and the Night Visitors tells the story of Amal, who is actually a disabled shepherd boy, and he has a propensity to tell all kinds of tall tales to his mother, who's a widow. His most recent story is about a star with a tail that moves across the sky like a chariot on fire. One night, there's a knock on the door, and in the process of telling his mother... Uh, who who is at the door, he tells her that there are three kings at the door. And of course, his mother says to him, Amal, you're still telling stories. And she goes to the door and there are three kings. So Amal is absolutely thrilled and fascinated with the three kings. And in turn, the three visitors describe the miraculous child that they are seeking to find. And the mother goes out and brings the entire village to honor them. In the end, Amal and his mother are moved to give reference to the child as well. And a miracle occurs, and poor little Amal can now walk. Wow. And there is an appeal to this story that gets repeated in many ways. Dickens wrote in A Christmas Carol, of course, crippled boy, tiny Tim, who receives the miracle of a gift from an unexpected source. And though Scrooge is no three kings, he does see three ghosts who help him find a better Christmas self. And it's still a gift from an unexpected and incredible source that makes us believe in miracles this time of year. It is a story that just has tremendous appeal. Absolutely. It's a beautiful story. And I think what's remarkable about this is not only Amal has a miracle, but the mother herself. Um, At one point, she goes to steal gold while the kings are asleep, and she sings a beautiful aria about what she could do with just one piece of gold for her child. Rich people know what to do with it. 
And in the end, when she's found out and the kings tell her about the child, she gives the gold back and she says, please keep your gold for such a child I've waited all my life. So the miracle affects Amal, his mother, and the kings as well. This in itself, the opera existing at all, is a miracle. As we heard Minotti say, just a month before the debut, he had no ideas at all. And just days before the actual broadcast, he was still composing. And his partner, composer Samuel Barber, was actually working out the orchestration. So it was kind of like a last-minute slapdash thing. Not what you would really consider how a, a, a beautiful story that has lasted through time and a beautiful opera uh, gets written. It's quite interesting because they did form, they did follow, right, a very classical formula where you have a dance. A lot of ball, you know, a lot of ballets are in operas, um, and so it has that traditional little overture. And actually, if you for if you follow the formulation, it's actually a mini masterpiece in itself. So I think they were quite clever to go with the traditional opera formula. And yet um, there are moments of humor in it as well as, you know, the beauty and of course the tragic moments as well. And one of the things Minotti said in that uh, introduction when the uh, piece was first performed on television was that he meant to write this, not, you know, dumbed it down or anything, but he meant it to be a children's opera. The audience he was after, even though he's gotten tons of adults over these decades, the audience he personally was after were young people. You know, it's interesting. If you think about it, it is written from a young person's perspective, right? Amal is always front and center. And for example, when he talks to Kaspar, the king, who is comical and deaf, right? You can see how a child would enjoy that. He has a parrot, he has a box, he has all these fancy little things that kids get into gadgets and toys, right? And his own toys. In a way, Casper's a child himself. And so you're absolutely right that Amal is not only the center of the story, but it is his story. And it is how he sees the world. And the kings are larger than life. And the villagers are his community. And his mother is both his best friend, his mom, and at the same time, his disciplinarian. So, right, our, our parents take on all of those roles. So you're absolutely right. This is taken from the perspective of a child and therefore has a lot of appeal to children. It's also important to the piece that you and everybody at Central City Opera are doing this in Colorado because for the piece to live, it has to keep getting performed. So you're doing something very special instead of somebody just going, oh yeah, I'm all in the night visitors. Yeah, I, I, I've heard of that. It was on TV or something, wasn't it? I mean, this is, this is an important thing. Well, thank you for that. You know, there is nothing like a live performance. And I think after the past few years that we've all endured, people are very excited to be back hearing live music and experiencing live theater. And that's, I think, another point here. It's not simply an opera that is stagnant or that, you know, you could do with your eyes closed, you need to see this piece. And so it is a theater piece. It's a crossover in that sense that it's as much theater as it is music. And I think the importance of bringing it to places, right? It's not being performed in Central City, but rather in places where people can gather together, places where people can take their families, take their children, and really enjoy being together at the holidays and having maybe a short experience, but I think that's the beauty of it. Um, a gem of an experience 
that lasts, that will stay with you for years. And I've had many people say to me, oh, I don't think I've seen a mall since I was a child and I'm thrilled to come back and see it. And it's it's lovely talking about the accessibility when he starts playing the pipe, which is, you know, the very beginning of the opera. It's fascinating how you get drawn in right away through that theme. Yes, and that's his own personal identity, right? Um, every child has their favorite toy, their favorite blanket, their favorite something that even in, in their saddest moments or their happiest moments that they can go to. And for Amal, it's his pipe. And I think, again, that's that moment of association for children thinking, oh, you know, whether you play piano or violin or you have a favorite toy that you play with, um, that's a child associating with something. It's a lovely part of the holiday season. I'm glad to know it's alive and well. Pamela Patos is the CEO of Central City Opera, which is performing Amal and the Night Visitors. Pamela, thank you so much for being with us. It has been an absolute pleasure, and I'm wishing you and all of your listeners a very happy holiday season. On hearing that there's a legal battle over who is the true queen of Christmas, my first thought was it was one of those stories you hear about where two mothers of high school seniors go to court over who is really elected homecoming queen and other things that seem to mean a lot at the time, but years later make you so embarrassed when mom brings them up, you stalk out of the house hoping to never hear about it again. But it isn't. Here we're dealing with two women, ages 53 and 42, who both want to be the queen of Christmas and one who wants to officially trademark it. This is one. To be queen. Sorry, Mariah Carey, but you kind of walk right into that. And in the other corner, also wearing red and green, is Elizabeth Chan. There is nothing like Christmas in the city, in your lawyer's office, faxing things to the copyright office. It turns out, a year ago, Mariah Carey had a fantasy, so to speak, that the U.S. Trademark Trial and Appeal Board would give her the sole right to call herself the Queen of Christmas, and also Trademark Princess Christmas and QOC. The lawyers may have at first thought that for some reason she wanted to be known as QOC because it's the legal abbreviation for quality of care, which comes up a lot in lawsuits involving nursing homes and hospitals. But no, it was that Queen of Christmas thing again. On hearing that, Chan went to the Boston law firm of Wilmer Hale, famous for, among other things, having the lawyer Joseph Welch take apart Senator Joseph McCarthy in Senate hearings in the 1950s that galvanized the nation which apparently is now doing things like helping decide who's the queen of Christmas. Well, apparently, as went McCarthy, so goes Mariah, because Chan won her case that there should be no one queen of Christmas. Or as Chan put it, my goal in taking on this fight was to stand up to trademark bullying, not just to protect myself, but also to protect future queens of Christmas. And what about the queens of Christmas past? Remember Darlene Love? Love also bridled it, Carrie trying to trademark the Queen of Christmas, saying, David Letterman officially declared me the Queen of Christmas 29 years ago, a year before Mariah released All I Want for Christmas is You, and at 81 years of age, I am not changing anything. Besides that, Queen Latifah's recorded Christmas songs, and the group Queen recorded Thank God It's Christmas. So when deciding on who might be the Queen of Christmas, there's a lot of tiaras to go around. And a fun fact, 
Left out of this competition to trademark Queen of Christmas is the only person who might really have a claim to it. She has not filed any claim with the U.S. Trademark Trial and Appeal Board. She apparently comes from Bethlehem, apparently not the one in Pennsylvania, and is called not Mariah, but Mary. I'm sure some hotshot lawyer would be happy to take up her case if she felt there was really any need to. This has been the Holiday Special from CBS News Radio, produced by District Productive and Paul Woody Woodhull with the help of Hunter Sense. I'm Gil Gross. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings early and ad-free on the 48 Hours Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts.